0: Can I say hello now? Hi Tabitha. Hi. <laughs> so nice to talk to you. It could not be a harder moment for you to do it, so I really
1: appreciate you making the time. <laughs> so shall I press press new audio recording now? Yes. Yes, please okay. do. Okay. All right.
0: Okay. Okay then. Let's let's do this thing. I'm Abigail Disney. Welcome to All Ears, my podcast where I get to go deep with some super smart people. This season, I'm talking to good troublemakers, artists, activists, politicians, and others who aren't afraid to shake up the status quo. We'll talk about their work, how they came to do what they do, and why it's so important in hard times to think big. You can't think about solutions without being a little optimistic. And man, oh man, I think we need some optimism right now. Okay, now. I have always loved film. Always. It was never not part of my world. Films can climb deep into your heart and change you forever. They can also change the world Around you. My father made films for the wonderful world of Disney and in 1969 made a film about how the Peregrine Falcon was in danger of extinction because of DDT. And it was not long after that that the DDT was banned, and his film was a big reason for that happening. So the stories we tell and the stories we hear shape who we are and how we think. And the best films reach into us and change us forever. No one is more thoughtful about film than my guest today, Tabitha Jackson. She has consistently challenged the industry to broaden the scope of what stories and whose stories get made and seen. As a commissioner at Channel 4 in the UK and then at the helm of the Sundance documentary program, she championed artists and movies that push the boundaries of form and content. Now as director of the Sundance Film Festival, she's bringing those ideas to an even larger audience This year is her first festival in the position, and and yikes, what a year to get started. Sundance 2021 kicks off today, January 28th, and suffice to say that the experience will be a little bit different than it has in the past. This year, the festival is mostly virtual with a smaller lineup, only 71 features, and is packed with first-time and BIPOC directors. And I, for one, am very excited to hear all about it, so thank you, Tabitha, for joining
1: me. Abigail Disney what an absolutely beautiful introduction which <laughs> I'm completely undeserving of but I remember hearing you talk about documentary film about film in general and you said something which has always stayed with me which is this moment when you are transported when you cease to remember who you are where you are what ethnicity you claim what gender you claim and you're just lifted into the work and that's the moment I think we all strive for both as as filmmakers and also audience members. Right. So you're not so shabby yourself when it comes to thoughtfulness.
0: Thank you. I mean I do think that that there's no other word for that than magic. Yeah. You know, it it really is. So 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 the film festival is opening today and so I just got to ask where are you on the continuum from happy to
1: terrified to just wanting to go sleep somewhere? I mean like how are you feeling? <laughs> it's amazing. You know, I've gone through many different conditions from being, you know, sad at the loss caused by the pandemic, not not just in the world, which was enormous, but also in our little world of putting on the festival, then to a kind of liberation, actually, Abby, to think that that this festival has been going for 36 editions. And that was a great responsibility for me not to not to mess it up. And this year's kind of liberated me because I have to mess with it. And then it went into the very challenging um, taking the festival apart piece by piece and trying to put it back together in a different form that was fit for the moment while navigating global pandemic, which we knew, racial uprising, which we wanted, but we didn't see that coming, assault on the capital, didn't see that coming, and, and so I have, at moments, been in the fetal position. <laughs> but now I'm up and excited for all this new work to meet the world. So I'm going to go backwards, because I'm always
0: interested in how a person comes to film to start with and where film fit in for them
1: in their childhood. So do you remember the first film you ever saw in a theatre? I do, actually. I remember it because, for a couple of reasons, my dog, I think it was about seven My dog had just died. And so my dad, I was raised by my dad in a little village. The local cinema was about a 30-minute drive away. And I hadn't been there before. And he said, I'm going to take you to the cinema, to the pictures, as we call it. I'm going to take you to the pictures to cheer you up. And he took me to see this lovely animated film, which traumatized me (gasps) for life. The film was Watership Down. Uh Yeah. And it's about rabbits, rabbit warfare, rabbit violence and death. One of our yeah. the main characters dies. And so in that moment, I learned a couple of things. I learned about cinema because I remember distinctly being in the same room as a lot of people feeling the same thing that they were feeling all at the same time. So that was pretty amazing. And and you know, side note, my dad was a vicar. So I'd been used to going to places with lots of people in, and engaging in something. Some people talk about cinema as their religion. And, I, and it was very close to me in that sense. But it also it also taught me about death, you know, that, that there was a way I was processing what had happened to my dog through what was happening to the rabbit. And later on, my dad died actually shortly after I started work at Sundance. And I remember when he died thinking back to that film of Watership Down. So there was some crazy circle of meaning going on. But yeah, that was my first film.
0: Wow. And so that partly answers the question for me, which was what role did film play in your childhood?
1: I didn't go to the cinema very often because it was a ride away and we didn't have that much money. And also I couldn't get there. We're in a tiny village. But I watched an enormous amount of television and on television, that's where I saw all the films. And and it, there's something about watching TV late at night, watching things you're not supposed to watch. And there's a feeling of intimacy that is different from the complete immersion that you get in a cinema. But in a cinema, I am also, until that moment we just spoke about of being transported or a transcendent moment, I'm also very aware of other people around me in eating popcorn or coughing (laughs) or whatever it is they were doing. So there is an an immediacy with television. And I think sometimes we forget the symbiotic relationship between television and film in that sense. And that's how I experienced it all. Right,
0: right. And of course, every new technology, when television came along, it was like, oh my God, that's the end of the theater. When DVDs came along, oh, that's the end of the theater. And the theater never dies because... As great as all the other forms are, people still
1: want to gather. Yes. And, and we're so hungry to gather again. It's going to be so interesting seeing how we emerge from this pandemic and how comfortable people feel about going back to the cinema. It's an interesting moment. I mean, more threatening than all of those technological advances. Yeah, I think so. So I know you started at Channel 4. What, what took, what's the road to Channel 4 look like? The road to Channel 4 was a, a philosophy degree, Followed by working at the BBC, you know, the great public broadcaster that was such a feature of my uh, dad was listened to the radio all Mm -hmm, the time, mm -hmm. slightly too loudly. And it was always (laughs) on the BBC Radio 4, which was a, a talk radio station. And I loved the BBC so much. So that was my first job. And I was very proud to I kind of understood what public service broadcasting was from the get-go and so that's I started there worked in documentaries at the at the BBC and fell in love with it uh instantly actually
0: so you never considered any other kind of life
1: or career no I mean no I think the fact of doing a philosophy degree it does make you pretty much useless. <laughs> <laughs> makes you pretty useful that's like Steve Martin said what am I going to do open a philosophy shop I'd love to go to Steve Martin's philosophy shop though
0: <laughs> that, that would be an interesting place to be. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so so I, I inhabit Planet Documentary for the most part. And there is a perception that a documentary should always be important. Mm. And funders are always looking for impact and, unfortunately, impact that can be measured. Do you think that, that a documentary has to be important or valuable? Or-
1: no. I mean, I think if you are, if you are asking someone for money then it is your role to explain why they should give it to you and that can be that can include why you think this it's important to tell this story but it kind of makes me sigh when someone so, describes a film as an important film i mean sometimes it definitely is but what does that what does that mean and how do you know it's important i mean these things have a long tail of meaning and there are films i don't know if i think of a film that has a has had an impact on so many people, a film like Grey Gardens. I mean, you wouldn't think that was an, quote, important film when it first came out. It's a wonderful film and has grown to have a cultural importance. Often the word important means that it has a kind of instrumental value in moving the needle on a social issue. And I think it is it is vital that we are clear about how we value films and how we value art, That certainly is one measure for some films if that is the intention or sometimes even if it's not the intention. Well, you know,
0: I once heard you make this distinction between transformational and transactional films. Mm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, it
1: goes to the role of art in providing transformation that we are left changed and that's not specific to cinema it happens with music, it happens with literature. It gives a certain timeless, lasting quality to something. And it is, I think, one of the powers of art. The transactional quality is more that you go and tell other people about this social issue. Again, that's a, a kind of legitimate way of using some kind of film. That often results in a diminishment of that first quality because it's the intent is so clear from the get-go. And often it can be counterproductive because if the if it is wearing its its heart or its social agenda so clearly on its sleeve, often it will only reach an audience who already agree with it. However, there has been incredibly transformational nonfiction work that has changed the way we think about certain things. Whether it's LGBTQ rights, whether it's Sea World, Blackfish, uh, yeah. so. You know, there is there is work that do that. So so I'm not trying to not trying to set up a, a division. Work can be both transformational and socially engaged and meaningful. But um, you know how I
0: think of it from for my purposes, is I think of it as the difference between a question mark and an exclamation point, <laughs> you know, because like <laughs> that's wonderful. This is a culture full of exclamation points. You know, we just are so flummoxed by a question mark. And something like, I mean, I thought The Truffle Hunters was just a mind-blowingly great film. Mm -hmm. Um, And what was that except a long series of question marks, one after the other. And I just felt like I was transported.
1: I love that. I love that. I mean, I love that film. But I also love the way you just described it because a question mark implies listening It implies curiosity and it implies the presence of another. It's an act of communication. The exclamation mark is kind of just about an individual stating their response to something. Mm -hmm. I love that question mark, exclamation mark.
0: So a lot of news around your your position,
1: your first year as
0: director, pointed to the fact that you're a woman of color in a field that's dominated by white men. I mean, is that
1: annoying? It's not annoying. But I mean, I, as an individual, I have a complicated relationship to my own identity. And I'm sure we all do. The labels that other people put on you don't necessarily conform to how you see yourself in the world. I would
0: say I don't enjoy heiress very much. But
1: anyway, <laughs> go on. I would love to have (laughs) Eris appended to my name. Anyway, uh, Yeah, I mean, the question of identity, I think the the most useful thing I can do with them is to remember that there is a responsibility that goes with this gatekeeping privilege, the power of the resources uh, and attention that I currently have my hands on. There is a responsibility with that. And I take that very seriously. And then beyond that, I just have to put those descriptions in a box and just do the work it might be relevant in the story of sundance but it's not relevant to the work at hand it's the values that dictate that rather than the labels
0: yeah yeah but do you feel pressure at all that you maybe your decisions and choices might be more closely scrutinized or might be chalked up to motivations that aren't actually there
1: no. And I don't feel pressure because I won't allow myself to do that. I think through all of my career and in fact, in just the way I've lived, you know, I'm a, this kind of pat description of a mixed race, adopted child of divorced parents, everything about me and where I lived in and how I was raised was I was always the different one. And that could either be something that was going to define me or something that I could just, put aside and and move forward and now actually having said that I do quite enjoy the difference so I enjoy being the only British person at Sundance and having a a sense of kind of um, contrarianism being able to see what Feels like the prevailing orthodoxy makes me want to question it. And I think that can be quite useful in it, an organization that stands for independence.
0: So, when when John Cooper left and there was this wide search, 700 applications came in for the director position. You said really? you, yes. <laughs> you, I had no idea. Yeah. So, this, this is a little self esteem moment for you. Um, <laughs> so, you weren't really sure you wanted to throw your
1: hat into the ring. Why, why was that? I, wa- I don't know how you can read my mind in that way. But yes, that was absolutely true. I loved what I was doing. So I was running the documentary film programme. And as I had been doing through all my career, had been engaged in that messy, wonderful thing we call the creative process. So it, I was making um, films and television quite badly and then I became <laughs> a commissioning editor and then I came to Sundance and it was all about like, what is this person trying to say and why and how can I help them say it in a way that expresses what they're trying to do? So that, the, the making of work has always been thrilling to me and the, and the, the meaning making and being alongside that process. The festival seemed like a big, scary thing that wasn't about the process. It was about the the completed thing, which is exciting. But it was all, I would never call it a product, but but (laughs) it was all about, it was also all about tickets and sponsors and everybody having a stake in it and just a lot of stuff that I didn't really want to deal with. So that was my hesitation. That was my hesitation. And then I slept on it quite a lot and talked to lots of friends about it and you know the thing that has the thing that has kind of got me up in the morning about this work is that i think it matters and it matters because these voices are really important to the fabric of how we understand our existence if that doesn't sound too pompous and so if i think it matters then why wouldn't i engage with this incredibly powerful cultural tool that is the festival and for 10 days at the start of each year a lot of eyes are on it it's an incredible thing to be able to direct attention to voices or work that that otherwise may not be seen so that's that's why I said yes so do you have a
0: vision for the Sundance or somewhere you want to take it
1: yes I mean it's still founded in the values of the Sundance Institute, the non-profit organisation founded by Robert Redford in 1981, in response to what he saw as a restriction of creative freedom by the studio system. And so he thought, all right, well, I have some land, I have friends who are directors and writers, and I know that there are emerging voices who will never get their work funded, so let's get together and try and develop it. That was the beginning of the Sundance Institute Those founding values of independent voice, championing of a diversity of voices and approaches and perspectives are still key. But I do want, my passions, I suppose, are a diversity, and by diversity I do mean a diversity of perspectives and also forms and also language, particularly around nonfiction. And I'm learning a lot about fiction and... and, and what's possible there. And also as we see the landscape changing and the advent of the streamers and the difficulties that the independent artists are finding with sustainability and getting their work made and seen, I think there is a really important role for festivals there. Right,
0: right. Well, you know, I mean, we we are all blue in the face from talking about COVID. All the things that were thwarted and changed and didn't happen, or, you know, but mm. but do you think that the interruption has been a blessing for Sundance in some ways?
1: You know, it's hard to say that. I th- I think we're we're I think we're all the same in think whenever one talks about the good things that have happened as a result of this pandemic, it seems to diminish the really terrible things that have happened to so many people. So even on that level of a good thing for sundance, I mean, we as a nonprofit, we had to lay off a bunch of our staff. That was that was awful. And, you know, also our staff and the artists that we serve have gone through just the most awful things, whether it's actually the loss of people or the loss of livelihood or the loss of kind of creative momentum of not being able to do the thing that they they want to do anymore. But against all that, yes, I think it proved this moment of pause, interruption, was a moment where we were forced to reconsider the value of everything we were doing and how we were doing it, because it was all threatened. And even to just contemplate putting on a festival means you have to ask yourself, why would you do this in this moment where you've just laid off staff? You're really gonna spend money on a film festival? Well, the answer is yes, because of our mission and what we think the importance of what we think the stakes are in this moment of the independent voice. And the fact that artists have, you know, for those artists who are able to make work against the odds, they've done it. So it's our responsibility to lift up that work and get it to audiences in the way that we can. Right. So what do you think will
0: never return to normal?
1: Ooh, what will never return to normal? I don't know, because, you know, I think a return to normal, to me, isn't, in all aspects, a good thing. So there are things, I hope we don't return to normal, I hope we don't return to normal in the way that we just, uh, I definitely include myself in this kind of unthinkingly jump on a plane to go to all kinds of places, and the, the toll that takes environmentally. And the worry is that it's so easy for us to revert back to the old ways, as it pertains to our own festival, I hope that we never go back to normal in that only the people who are financially able or physically able to get to Park City, it's only those people that get to experience the festival. I don't want to go back to that now that we know there is another way. It doesn't mean I want to replace an in-person festival with a virtual festival, but one can have both, I think. One can have the best of both worlds.
0: Well, that was going to be my next question, actually, because it's, it's both the best and worst thing about Sundance, is that that it's exclusive and jam-packed with important people and you feel like you're at the center of the universe, and and that is fantastic. But, I mean, I've always been very conscious of who's not there and why. Yes. Um, how are you going to make it more
1: accessible? Well this year just provided us an opportunity to really there were no constraints really on how accessible this festival could be so whether it's geographically accessible because people from anywhere around the world can encounter them just by you know logging onto the website to accessibility on screen using widgets that help people with visual impairments to making sure that all our talks and events are 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 signed we want to be a more accessible festival and that means not just physically but it means financially and so we one of the things we committed to was that whoever came to this festival 20% of them would be subsidized we wanted to subsidize 20% of the of the tickets and passes so that we could welcome more people and different kinds of people in. And that includes things like Press Inclusion Initiative that enables different people to be writing about the work and experiencing it and getting it to, again, to different kinds of audiences. Now, this festival has uh, 57% of all the projects have
0: a BIPOC director, Mm. 26% of all projects have a woman of colour director, Mm. and more than half of them are first-time directors, Mm, mm. which is kind of extraordinary. So did you do anything differently to land on that
1: result? Well, it's my first time, so I just did what I did for the first (laughs) time. But we know from, particularly coming from the documentary world, the non-fiction world, this question of authorship is really key. Who is telling the stories about whom and why? And so in discussions of the films with of course, talking about who has made these and what does it represent and what are they bringing to it. We absolutely were not curating to, to quotas or mm-hmm. benchmarks. It just was the case that we saw a lot of strong work, which has ended up in the program. But I'm uh, very pleased about it. I think that's a great direction for us.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's thrilling. It's really thrilling, especially the first-time directors. It's just so exciting to hear new voices. Are you allowed to tell me about films you're really excited about? Or do you have
1: to seem neutral? <laughs> I, <laughs> there are so many. It's very hard because we, we, can I firstly tell you a, bit, a little bit about the process of of how we oh, get to these I was going to ask films. you about it. Please, ah, walk well, okay. me through it. Because this is my first year. It's the first time I've seen how the sausage is made. It's like, (laughs) oh, I see. So when people submit their films, they submit them through an online system and there's a team of screeners who watch every single film all the way through and write notes all the way through. No film goes unwatched or partially watched. So they write lots of notes and coverage and then the full-time programmers come in and they all watch it. And then they... Determine which films are going to move up to the next level. And at that next level, everybody, fiction and nonfiction, are all in the room discussing these films. And so,
0: with. Wait, so how many
1: submissions? There were about, and I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but somewhere around 13,000 submissions. But that includes about almost 10,000 shorts. Ah, uh, oh, phew. So, <laughs> well, you say few, but the shorts programmers, that's still a lot of, that is a lot of viewing to do uh, 10,000 films. And they, too, watch every single film all the way through. So what that means is there are lots of perspectives in the room and lots of argument and lots of going backwards and forwards. I think it makes for a kind of very dimensional discussion and yes, we began at the individual film level. And then where we get to is programming a festival and how these films talk to each other. So when it gets to this and a question like, what, what are the films you're particularly excited about? I've kind, of, I've kind of gone beyond that into these all work together in a festival sense. So that was a very long-winded answer to your, to your <laughs> well, question. Well, I was going to ask, do themes emerge? Themes certainly emerge. We saw lots of films about empowered women fighting against systems that were built by and for males. We saw a lot of films, as you might expect, about either about the pandemic or made during the pandemic. So the form of them reflect the conditions in which they were made. So distanced casting, casting. Lots of themes about kind of dystopian or there's something out there that's going to get us. And then, you know, we wondered what we might see about the the uprising for racial justice that happened in June. And then we reminded ourselves that actually films have been being made about racial injustice and violence. Um, uh, for a long time. That would be since the beginning of cinema. Yeah. Exactly. And until recently,
0: not much paid attention
1: to. Exactly.
0: For a long time, BIPOC filmmakers were told that, well, there's just no audience. Women filmmakers, no audience for that. No audience. We can't sell that. Has the market changed? And do you think it's changing
1: still? I think... um, The market has changed, partly through organisations like Sundance and the growth of the independent film movement. There was a prevailing orthodoxy about what was marketable and what wasn't. And then through festivals like ours, that work became beloved and sought after and, you know, for good or ill, commodified. That feels a very healthy expansion of the marketplace, I think, what we must never do is to chase the marketplace and for that to affect our curation. What we should be doing is constantly looking for things that have perhaps been kept in the margins and bring them where they have value to the center and shine a light on them,
0: yeah, give them their chance in yes. the, in the
1: spotlight and then exactly see what exactly yeah. you know for, for me. What the market represents, what industry represents, is the ability to get this work to audiences. So that is in itself an incredible value. And yet what the festival can also do is, is to elevate work that we think is just worth seeing. And even if it doesn't have a jot of commercial viability about it, that's fine because it can have a life on the festival circuit and be meaningful because of that.
0: I, as a filmmaker, and and especially as a funder and producer, think about that all of the time, because I see lots of film that just have zero chance of of ever
1: seeing a deal or getting a chance to be seen besides at festivals. Right. And I think, you know, we're in a much better position because of the democratisation of technology and also because of, you know, the rise of the internet. That is... It's actually very rare that things never get seen anymore. I mean, they can get lost in the noise, which is a different, a different kind of problem. But if I think, you know, to your earlier question, I think we just should never second-guess an audience. We should never assume things. And so I think of a wonderful film like Ramel Ross's Hale County this morning, this evening, which is such a, a beautiful, um, intentional thoughtful piece of work that wouldn't necessarily get into Sundance Film Festival, but it did, wouldn't necessarily get picked up, but it did, almost definitely wouldn't be in part of the, the Oscar race, and it was, and it ended up being nominated. And that, it isn't just like, oh, because the work was so good, it just happened. There are a lot of people um, carrying that, that work. It takes writers to write about it. It takes people who've seen it to tweet about it, to carry this work through more towards the the kind of bloodstream of of the culture. But it happens. And then suddenly, you know, a door has been opened. You know, in groups form around powerful people
0: and powerful festivals Mm. and decision makers and things. That's just the nature of things. And then you take Sundance and that's like, it's just putting that dynamic on amphetamines because the access is Mm. so expensive and the spot in the festival Mm. is so career making. So how do you, it's, I think of it as a wall of social equity. So how do you set yourself up in that kind of a
1: context it's such a it's such an important question abby i'm learning in this my my first year as festival director the whole independent community we pride ourselves on the fact that we're built on relationships but then when it comes to access to you know real estate as it were a place in the festival or or some funding how do those relationships not become a kind of downside when it comes to equity. Oh, this person knows that there is an extension to the deadline so that they can ring you up and, and ask for one, or they just know to ask for it. It's really difficult to get, that, to get that balance right. And so I think just constantly being aware of it, that these constant little things that can lead to inequity, we just have to be calling ourselves to account as frequently and as often as we can and hope that there are constructive critics who will do the same for us. And in a number, pretty much every job where I've had resources, you have this short window of time where people will tell you the truth because you're new to the system. And then you become part of the system and they don't tell you the truth in the way that they would have done because it's a risk for them. I think it's a real it's a real problem and probably more so in a Uh, in a community-based relationship-driven field like independent cinema. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the hardest
0: balancing acts is what to do with flattery or how to know the difference between praise and flattery because it's a dangerous thing. It gets into your skin and then it gets into your bloodstream and suddenly you're thinking about yourself in a certain kind of way. So I see every compliment as kind of something I have to bat away, but then...
1: I don't know how to keep a positive sense of self steve either. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, when I was a commissioning editor, so I had money and I had real estate, you know, broadcast hours. At that point, never was I funnier. Never, never was I more attractive. And, and one <laughs> became very, very suspicious of any... For any compliment, as you're saying, but totally believed every criticism. Yeah, <laughs> and so that's the that's the danger of it. But yeah, I'm I I am aware that I don't know what is behind many of the relationships again because this field is it's social and it's professional because it's mission driven. Most of us have the work life balance completely askew because the work is so much fun. And also we believe in it. So I just think a healthy skepticism, which in itself is not necessarily a healthy thing, but a healthy skepticism about any compliment is probably what's going to save us from being completely monstrous egomaniacs when we <laughs> come out the other side of whatever it is that we're doing.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. So the marketplace aspect of Sundance
1: was already a little bit changing.
0: But of course, with the, the pandemic, The deals have all but gone away, especially for documentary filmmakers. What do you think that means for us? And do you think Sundance's market role will ever become as robust as it once was?
1: I don't know. And I'm totally fine with saying that because so much is up in the air and up for grabs. And it was even before the pandemic, it felt like the old structures had been upended and the question was, what were the new structures going to be? There was an opportunity and still is to write the next chapter. We know that not least because of the advent of the streaming platforms and production having shut down because of the pandemic, we know that there is a huge appetite for what some people might call content. So I'm not despondent about that, but I think you're right. The the changes that we were seeing were things like, streamers wanting to make their own content rather than acquire things at a festival like ours you know that's still a that's still a problem what are we going to what are we going to do with that because i think for a, uh, one of the strengths about the independent sector has been the kind of by any means necessary approach and that also results in creative freedom if you can keep your budgets low then you're less dependent on other people having to put money into it and having a say and and more likely to get the work done that you want to get done but it's a it's a complicated landscape now and so there is the financial aspect and the structures and the distribution and those structures weren't necessarily equitable so it's not like we need to mourn the old ways but we need to take what was good from that and see how we can form a new landscape with the values that we that we now hold
0: you mentioned earlier you talked a little bit about coming out of bbc and then channel four and
1: this Mm. is
0: you know publicly minded broadcasting obviously the united states has a whole different sensibility about Mm. what you know what the government what role the government should play in the arts and so forth
1: well yes, absolutely. So what what we what is left often, certainly in the field that I'm most familiar with, it are a lot of people telling stories who can afford to tell the stories, even with when there is a lack of funding. And so it reduces the dimensionality of the endeavour. It excludes many voices that and so it excludes a kind of truth about our condition because there's only a certain kind of person who can who can frame it narratively. So it's a huge amount of blind spots. And it's it's an ironic thing in documentary, isn't it, Abby? Because we are it, it is, it's a field that is so closely associated with social justice, doing good, and pointing out inequity, and we ourselves are riddled with it. But at least it's a live conversation. We're aware of it, and we just we need to address it somehow.
0: Yeah, but so what? So what? How do we?
1: How do we get that in place? <sighs> so, for example healthy development funding for artists and we have to make sure that the kind of artists we are giving development funding to are beyond the range of those who are familiar to us and so that we can think very carefully about what questions we ask when we're about to give you know money or resources or access and hold ourselves hold ourselves to account about what patterns we are falling into and what our blind spots are. I mean, I think that's just a kind of internal reckoning that we need to do and we've started doing. You know, what questions are we asking um, on the submission forms? What questions is it appropriate and not appropriate to ask? There, is a, there has been a kind of, I would describe it as a kind of purism about don't distract us with any biographical details. We simply are interested in the work. Well, that doesn't feel right to this moment. And, you know, if you just look at the work and this this piece of work is glossy and well-produced and beautifully accomplished, and this piece of work is scrappy and doesn't have the production values, there might be a reason for that which has nothing to do with the filmmaking prowess, but everything to do with access to resources. And so that's, I think, a relevant consideration. It's one of the reasons why we have such an imbalance in the field, and and a hu- huge range of perspectives that we're not hearing from.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, one last question: Are there one or maybe two films that you're most proud of having championed, and why?
1: I am not going to answer that question ah. because I think the engagement with the makers of the work is the thing that I have most valued and cherished. And so, no, I I would just say, as a complete non-answer to that, I would say, we talk so often about the power of story, which is a thing, but what we are really talking about is the power of storytellers. And they don't just spring fully formed from the womb. They need sustainability and they need attention and they need a a creative space in which to flourish and to fail, you know, before they enter the the culture. And so I think the system rather than the individual success stories is what we should make ourselves proud of and do that together. Okay, that's
0: beautiful. That's a
1: perfect answer. (laughs) I'm going to stop you there. Thank you so much for having me, Abby. I really
0: appreciate it. And thank you for just being so generous about your time. Pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Okay, take care.
1: All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Sundance Film Festival opens today, January 28th, and runs through February 3rd. To find out if there are screenings in your area or to watch some of the films virtually, check out Sundance.org and follow Tabitha on Twitter at Tabula4, T-A-B-U-L-A 4. All Ears is a production of Fork Films. The show was produced by Alexis Pancrazzi and Christine Schomer. Lauren Wimbush is our associate producer. Sabrina Yates is our production coordinator. Our engineer is Veronica Rodriguez. Bob Golden composed our theme music. The podcast team also includes VP of production, Aideen Kane. Our executive producer is Kathleen Hughes. Learn more about the podcast on our website, forkfilms.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review All Ears wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.